Section 13 of A Short History of France by Mary Duclos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Part 2. Chapter 5. The Hundred Years' War. Part 2. But war and trade were not the sole concern of Charles. He was a student and a lover of ideas. To any young historian in search of a job, I would recommend the growth of intellectual France under the reign of Charles the Wise. Justice has scarce been rendered to the movement and spread of ideas in France between, say, 1360 and 1380, and but for those wars and battles by which we date our histories, yet which, rightly considered, are often merely interruptions to history, the splendid outburst of art and letters which glorified France a hundred and fifty years later might have quietly succeeded to the rule of the wise king. The Paris of Charles the Wise was little less occupied with antiquity than the Paris of Francis I. It was not quite the same antiquity. Aristotle, Boethius, Seneca were the names to conjure with. Humanists, translators, geographers, historians were the darlings of the court. The intellectual contact with Italy was established and an Italian, Christina of Pisa, was one of the great French authors of her time. If I insist on these apparently unimportant details, it is because in this court of the wise king the seed was sown of moral and mental influences which will more and more affect the growth of France. Everyone knows that France went hungry during the Hundred Years' War, that fields were fallow, villages in ruin, roads overgrown and made a wilderness. It is surely as important to date the rise of that half-romantic, half-stoical temper, which more and more will seem to us peculiarly French, and to trace to their source those political and moral ideas which then emerge from the doctrines and dogmas of the Middle Ages. The notion of the state, on the one hand, a passionate conception of its unity and absolute authority, on the other hand, a no less passionate affirmation of the rights of the private persons who compose it. The rights of man, l'université du commun peuple, is a twi-fronted ideal that preoccupies and divides the mind of France. In the pages of Gerson, Christine de Pizan, the monk of Saint-Denis, and their contemporaries, there is a warmth of conscience, a sense of political ethics, which has caused an American historian, Miss Maudie Temple, to compare the philosophers and historians of the reign of Charles the Wise with our own Victorian radicals, J. S. Mill and his followers. For several centuries thenceforward, we shall watch the great political parties, which then begin to disengage themselves, gradually arrive at their perfection. Absolutists and Democrats, fighting at first as it were in masks or in mufti, feebly essaying their principles under a disguise as Armagnacs and Burgundians, or as Catholics and Huguenots, while their inner significance gradually deepens and spreads until they learn what they really want and what they really mean, until at last each party in turn possesses the whole of France to essay its final experiment the one with the autocracy of Louis the Fourteenth, the other with the Great Revolution. And then the wise king died, 
and france so near recovered fell back again into the bottomless pit for the successor of charles the wise was charles the mad the hundred years war broke out anew the marriage of charles the sixth to isabeau of bavaria brought up to court a wave of german bad taste and worse morals and it was not for another century that the sense of culture art ideas revived and formed the great renaissance the chief feature of this second period of the hundred years war was the civil conflict which complicated its horrors the mad king had a brother louis duke of orleans a man infinitely subtle gifted amorous and cruel he was the head in front of the aristocratic party that party which was permeated with the new ideas that from italy had drifted into france theories of despotism of the divine right of princes apologies for the absolute authority of autocrats the duke had views of his own on italy he had married the daughter of john galeazzo visconti the despot of milan he was at the head of the party which first was called orleanist and afterwards armagnac the party of the rich the party also of the south those whose ideal was imperial rome as opposed to those whose half-conscious ideal was the democratic cities of flanders this upholder of the divine right of princes this head of a strong aristocratic party would fain have carved for himself a kingdom in italy that kingdom of adria whose phantom history i once meant to write and though nothing came of his dream yet because of all the intrigues it entailed the court of louis of orleans was a centre for all italianate influences in france such was louis of orleans tristifère tristiesse portant et tu fuis joli trop semblois il mérancolie qui le cuer a plus dur que faire as burcarius describes him over against him we must set his cousin jean Saint-Peur, john dreadnought duke of burgundy a small ugly man barbu brun et bien aimé says burcarius blunt and brutal as a bulldog restless violent demagogic as a burgher of ghent the blood of his flemish mother ran hot in his veins and the burghers and people of france says monstrelet adored this duke of burgundy because they believed that if he undertook the government he would put down throughout the kingdom all salt taxes imposts levies and other dues and subsidies with which the people were charged in excess of their conventions already the king had begun to transgress the budget of the states-general five and twenty years after the death of charles the wise there was no trace left of the prosperity which the wise king had conjured up amid the desolation of war-ravaged provinces say not the land of france complains the rector of the university of paris whom we know by his journal d'embourgeois de paris say not the land of france but rather the terre deserte there was not a village in france but the two factions split it in twain men looked askance at their neighbours and flung at each other's heads the deadly accusation armagnac or bourguignon in order to have a man killed says juvenal des ursins it was necessary to say 
Cetuila et Armagnac, and almost every rich person was supposed to be an Armagnac. Louis of Orleans came to a violent end. On the 20th of November, 1407, his cousin of Burgundy had him murdered in the streets of Paris as he was riding home one night after a supper with the Queen. That sister-in-law of his, with whom his relations were the subject of so much Burgundian scandal. But the disappearance of the leader had only inflamed the passions of his party. In the ardor of conflict, Burgundians and Armagnacs alike forgot the English invader, less odious than the hostile fellow-countrymen. In 1413 Jean saint occupied Paris and took the Bastille. With the butchers of Paris on his right, they were the richest corporation in the city, and the university on the left, eager to fight his battle either with bludgeon or with pen. Jean saint feared no one, but set a butcher on horseback. The inevitable defect of the French reformer is to go too fast and too far. Just like Etienne Marcel, the butchers got cross. They sent the Armagnac spinning, but it was the other burghers of Paris who soon tired of their revolutionary tyranny. They recalled the Armagnac, who re-entered the capital in 1414. No one seems to have given a thought to the English, and 1415 is the date of Agincourt. When on the eve of battle the burghers of Paris offered 6,000 crossbowmen from their communal train bands to the Duke of Berry, what do we want with the shopkeepers, exclaimed one of the Armagnac leaders. Yet on the 25th of October, 1415, the Battle of Agincourt was the third act of the feudal tragedy. After Crecy, after Poitiers, here was another triumph for the crooked stick and the grey goose-wing. The English yeomen with their bows and arrows vanquished again the tempestuous knights of France. Ten thousand Frenchmen lay prone upon the field. But the victorious army was too exhausted to pursue its advantage and made its way to Calais only to return to England. The Dauphin of France and the Armagnac leaders were to fight the Englishmen's battles as effectually as any yeoman of the shires. And indeed from the first the people of Paris laid the whole blame of this immense defeat upon the Armagnacs. The Duke of Burgundy and his party had not fought against the English at Agincourt. His prestige was intact. It was he who negotiated with the enemy. Had he been in power, said the populace, and regretted the violence of the butchers. In June 1418 there was a terrible rising of the masses in Paris, and all who bore the name of Armagnac were slain, more than a thousand persons in four and twenty hours. The Dauphin of France fled to Melon and thence to Loches. Once more Jean saint of Burgundy entered the capital amid the enthusiastic clamors of the people. Meanwhile, the English, restored, refreshed, and alert, had taken Rouen and were marching on Paris. When Jean saint proposed a peace, the English king, our Henry V, answered, Yes, with the French king's daughter given in marriage, and her dowry shall be Aquitaine, Normandy, Brittany, Men, Anjou, and Touraine. Burgundy hesitated, for this was more than that dowry of Eleanor which for so many centuries had rendered the unity of France impossible. 
what was to be done against an enemy in power and so preposterous the only possible course was to spin out the negotiations and gain time which jean saint peur did to the best of his ability in the face of the possible abolition of france armagnacs and bourguignons agreed to bury the hatchet and act together in a sort of sacred union the chiefs of either party jean saint peur and the dauphin consented to meet on neutral ground and draw up the tenets of their coalition a solemn interview took place on the tenth of september fourteen nineteen the two princes each attended by ten gentlemen met on the bridge of montereau their several armies ranged behind them at some distance along the different banks of the river what happened will probably always remain uncertain although we know the names of the persons present and all the details of the scene it is difficult to understand what it was that made a serious and courtly conference in so grave an hour of national disaster suddenly change and darken into a stormy skirmish the dauphin the young heir apparent was but a child of sixteen his father was mad and he himself of a nervous constitution when he saw in front of him the avowed murderer of his uncle that jean saint peur whom all his partisans painted blacker than the devil did the lad make some inconsiderate frightened gesture which his followers interpreted amiss there was a struggle a cry of kill kill tue one of the dauphin's men took his young master in his arms and carried him off the bridge when a minute later the mass of hurtling figures disentangled jean saint peur of burgundy was discovered dead his skull cleft by a blow from an axe the tragedy of montereau proved a profitable victory for the english in their wrath their loathing for the armagnacs the whole burgundian party flung itself into the arms of england and concluded with the invader that shameful treaty of troyes whereby the dauphin was declared unapt to wear the crown and the kingdom of france bequeathed after the death of its mad monarch to henry of england by virtue of his marriage with the princess catherine a year later the son of that union was born heir to a double throne and while he was still in his swaddling clothes his father departed this life henry the victorious king of england and his grandfather charles the mad king of france and the disinherited dauphin fled to the further side of the loire where the provinces of the south greeted him as a hero called him the avenger of orleans and the vanquisher of burgundy lauded him to the skies and made his exile seem a triumph End of section thirteen